Welcome to Behind the Page, the Eli Marks podcast, with your hosts, John Gaspard and me, Jim Cunningham. Hey, Jim. Hi, Jono. How are you? I'm good. We are up to episode 113. That's 113. That means it's chapter 12 of The Ambitious Card. Very good. You really, you've got this down so much. I might not even show up at the next recording. Well, I do the math before we actually go on live on these things now, because it, you know, I just don't want to look like an idiot. I appreciate that. It's less editing for me as well. So we've got some nice comments back on our Jeff Altman episode last time, uh, even from Jeff himself, who sent a nice really? note. Yes. And uh, we also have heard from uh, another of our, who's the closest furthest from Grass Lake Studios. Oh, Really? Yes, our friend Jennifer in Brighton in the UK wrote in to say, hey, am I the furthest? And she's actually about 500 miles short of our current record holder, Mark, in Switzerland. So uh, Jennifer, unless you're willing to relocate. I like it. I like the the fact that it just kills me that there are people all over the world uh, listening to us. It makes me very happy. It's this is the age we live in. I, I, I want to thank everyone who's tuned in. I'm surprised at the number of people who tune in. I'm surprised at their enthusiasm, which is really sweet. We always do a thing at the end. Why don't we just do it now? Because a lot of people probably have never heard the thing we do at the end. <laughs> They'll they, listen they, to the end. I certainly wouldn't. But at the end, we always say, we say thank you so much for listening. And please go ahead and uh, rate us or uh, leave a review on whatever platform you're listening on. Because you know what? Word of mouth is our best form of advertising. So please, if you are enjoying this, no matter where you are, you could be in Brighton. You could be in Switzerland. You could be in Anoka, Minnesota. If you're enjoying the podcast, share it with your friends. We'd appreciate it. That would be just fantastic. So this is the uh, third and final in the little mini arc we've been doing on growing up in magic. We heard from Julie Eng. We did uh, Jeff Altman last week. Laugh out loud funny. Yes. Good stuff. And so to conclude the trifecta, and I think I'm using the word trifecta properly there, aren't I? I believe you are. I think so. Uh, I, I only know it from the Paul Newman movie, Nobody's Fool, uh, which ah. if you haven't ever seen Nobody's Fool with Paul Newman, definitely look it up. It's a great movie. Uh, Melanie Griffith, Bruce Willis. Yeah. Great, yeah, great little movie. I just movie. watched it for the first time and it's great. Yeah. It's a great little movie. Anyway, the third person in this trifecta is Liberty Larson. Liberty's a fourth generation magician. She's part of the Larson family. They're famous, folks. Uh, If you're a magician, you can stop listening for a second because you know this. If you're not, listen up. They formed the Society of Magic Arts and they created the very famous Magic Castle. Yep. Liberty grew up around some of the top magicians in the world. And as she'll tell us, she resisted the siren song of magic for much of her young life and then finally succumbed because of her amazing lineage in the Larson family. Exploring that history was our very first question for Liberty. You're so interesting because you are a fourth generation magician, which I don't think I've met a fourth generation magician before. Can you kind of briefly recap the magical history of the Larson family? Yeah, absolutely. So it started with my great-grandparents. My great-grandfather was a man named William Larson Sr. He came from a family of vegetable canners in Wisconsin, and he left, yes, Larson Canning Company. Now, the company that's now Vegall, Vegall, that that was us. (laughs) Okay. It could have gone very different. So William Sr. left the canning company uh, in Wisconsin, I believe at the ripe age of 17. Okay. Los Angeles to become a criminal defense attorney and uh, incredibly enthusiastic magician. So that was his deal. He kind of struck out and started this whole new realm and married a woman named Jerry Larson, who was a magician in her own right. She ended up having uh, the first female magic show. It was for children called The Magic Lady. Yeah, it was pretty fantastic. I actually didn't see that show until I was in my teens. And I was, (laughs) I was like, so surprised. It's so amazing and trippy and beautiful. And just, yeah. So anyway, the two of them, had two boys, Milt and Bill, and the four of them traveled around different hotels in America performing as the Larson family of magicians. 
So they were like, it was the whole family deal. It's crazy. And so William Sr. used to give, uh, you know, psychic readings, like fake ones. He, he, he was very, made, made sure to say, this is all entertainment. This is all in jest. I'm just doing this to amuse you. But he would get all these ladies in a circle. And, I, you know, he has a book. I have his book here, The Mental Mysteries, where he goes into his different types of readings. And he really went all out with the theatricality. He was a very, um, he was a character. He even used magic in the courtroom like Perry Mason style. <laughs> but um, yeah, so they all performed as a family. And then William Sr. in 1936 started a magazine called Genie Magazine, the International Conjurers Magazine. And his idea was that when you subscribe to Genie, you would automatically become a member of an organization he started called the Academy of Magical Arts. So the two were kind of synonymous at that time. But it was always his dream to have a physical location where the Academy of Magical Arts could reside. And unfortunately, William Sr. passed away very young in his 40s. Um, so he never got to see that happen. But his two sons, Milt and Bill, my grandfather Bill and his brother Milt, both of them were working on television shows at that time, I believe. My grandfather was working uh, on the Danny Kay show and Milt was working on Truth or Consequences, I think. And so they both had these sort of TV jobs and Milt saw this castle on a hill, this Victorian mansion that was run down and falling apart. And he approached my grandpa and said, what do you think about dad's idea, making this a um, secret magic clubhouse for magicians? And my grandpa was in, they had very complimentary skill sets. So it was really like a, a team effort. My great uncle Milt was more the extremely the carpentry type. He built the whole place out. So how this happened though, was he approached the owner of this property because this place just looked totally run down just completely haunted and abandoned. And he approached this guy, Tom Glover, who owned it and told him his crazy idea. And this would have been in the late fifties. And Tom was so tickled by this idea that on the spot, he said, got a year and he gave him the keys and he said, do whatever you want to do, go crazy. You got a year. And he didn't even sign a contract. They didn't do any kind of, they just shook hands. And Milt always said, there's no contract stronger than a Texan handshake. <laughs> so the Milt went to town and I mean, he just started, he would go to old neighborhoods around Los Angeles that were tearing down these old houses. And he'd like give the guys working on it packs of beer and be like, I want to take this Tiffany window before you smash it. Or I just want to like, you know, take these pieces of wood and salvage them. So he just started going crazy, making the physical place. Meanwhile, my grandfather was starting the business side of it and getting all of his friends at you know CBS like okay you're gonna join the AMA and become a member and starts getting that whole ball rolling my grandmother who I hadn't mentioned yet Irene Larson was the third founder and she was really like the hostess with the mostest and kind of just like really motherly presence to everyone totally fabulous just extremely social person really huge-hearted person so the three of them together just had this perfect trinity of um qualities to start this place but they had no idea how long it would last they're like maybe this will last a year if we're lucky you know like the early my grandma used to tell me about opening night in the early early days and like you know they were just going crazy it was just their friends and pulling pranks on each other and doing crazy things but barely anyone was there and they were like we'll see how long we could get away with this you know and mm -hmm. and then over 50 years later <laughs> here we are <laughs> That's incredible. It really is. It's just a great, this is the, the key to this whole podcast for me is stories like that. <laughs> be talking to somebody who has that story to tell us. It's just fantastic. So as a kid growing up, how much time did you spend at the Magic Castle? A lot. Uh I mean, I was I was there all the time for brunches, for Saturday, for Sunday brunches mostly, Saturday and Sunday. I was Fully had to play by the rules, was not allowed at the castle till I was 21. Very rarely to see a show that my mom really wanted me to see. I could sneak backstage, but I was never allowed to just go hang out. Like I had to wait. So, but I was there a lot during the day uh, on the brunches and stuff and saw a lot of them. And we went to a lot of conventions and were just constantly around magicians. Do you know what, do you remember what your earliest magic memory is? One of my earliest memories is seeing Billy McComb when I was really little. Uh, do you guys know Billy? 
Sure. Oh my God, he was the best. And I remember not only seeing his show and I remember getting called on stage and just like adoring him, but also, God, as I got older, Billy was just the funniest person. I've one of the funniest people I've ever met. The stuff that he mumbled to himself under his breath was funnier than what most people say as a joke at a table. Like he was just making himself laugh. But yeah, I remember seeing Billy and I remember seeing um, Siegfried and Roy really young too. And that was just like, So I really enjoyed your performance on Penn and Teller. I thought you were terrific. I thought the magic was terrific. Uh, I laughed. It was delightful. Uh, you mentioned in there that it took you a while to surrender <laughs> the magic. And so what, uh, what exactly made you surrender or what performers maybe inspired you to take on uh, magic? Well, yeah, I was rebelling against it for a while, which is a funny thing to rebel against. <laughs> but um, what made me surrender was a few things. Um, there were some key performers who I saw who all kind of started, there was like this little wave of renaissance that happened when I was in my late teens, early twenties. Rob Zabrecki, Derek Hughes, Derek Delgadio. uh, I saw this woman, Malin Nilsson from Sweden. And I was just seeing people doing this theatrical stuff with magic that I had never seen. Because a lot of the stuff I had seen, even though I always really enjoyed it, had felt like a similar tone, a similar, presentation and then there was just this sort of um paradigm shift and this like out of the box thing so that was really like oh that's awesome I didn't know it could feel like that or look like that and then around the same time um I know this will sound kind of crazy to the real magic aficionados but I really hadn't delved into earlier earlier magic like the sort of you know turn of the century into the 20s I was just I grew up in the 90s and watched that type of magic. So I started getting exposed to more classic stuff and that really kind of took my breath away. And I was just starting to look at the rich history of, wow, um, this is just beautiful. And there are so many different ways it can be presented. And I, I did feel kind of hesitant because I swear, I think I even made like an oath to myself when I was a teenager that I would never be a magician or something really silly like that. I was like, you're never going to do it. Like, just don't do it. You, you know, you don't want to, but then, you know, the tides really turned and I saw all these different facets of it. And I just, I thought it was beautiful. The, the, the things I've seen you do, you do have a definitely sort of a classical feel to your work. Are there some heroes from the twenties and thirties and forties that you wish you could have met that, that you discovered? I wish I could have met Dante, honestly. I wish I could have seen Dante's show and uh, Moyo Miller and just the whole production. That's probably who I would like to see. I mean, there are a lot of them I would have. I would have. I feel like I would love to be a fly on the wall of so many of the performances of that era because you can see it on video, but to, to feel it in person would be so different. But yeah, Dante's the first one that comes to mind. You mentioned uh, some magicians that sort of... Uh turned your world a little bit when it came to magic, Derek Hughes, uh, Mm -hmm. Derek Ducadio. Do you have, are there some performers who are uh, your contemporaries, people that you saw who who could be heroes of yours? I gotta say, I love Carissa Hendricks. She is, she's great. She's just having so much fun with it. And I'm trying to think who else, I mean, as far as, I, Mala Nilsson, who is from Sweden, is around my age, too, and she's a huge hero of mine. She is just her The theatricality and, and uh, showmanship that she puts into it is so beautiful. <laughs> One of the things you mentioned during the Penn and Teller performance, well, it was a setup for the very good joke about, you know, I'm not going to lie to you, that whole setup. But you talked about Magician's Guilt, which is in this first book uh, in the Eli Marks series, The Ambitious Card. I had to learn how to do an ambitious card because I didn't know anything about magic. And so as it turns out, there's a world-class magician right here in Minneapolis named Suzanne, who you probably know. Uh, And she gave me lessons on how to do the ambitious card. And one of the things I had to overcome was the guilt of lying to people. Yes. (laughs) 
and and so that became sort of a theme for Eli in in this first book is he's teaching someone how to be a magician and the guy he's just having tremendous guilt because he doesn't want to lie to people. Was it actually an issue for you? Absolutely. That presentation was a way out for me <laughs> because the recruiters who asked me to be on the show saw the ice effect that I did, which I did in my close-up show at the Magic Castle, which was a really surreal, like uh, fables and fairy tales all about time, like the perception distortion of time. So this was a very like artsy show and that was done in a totally different way. And they were like, can you do that trick on the show? And I was like, okay. And then I thought about it and I was like, how do I, ah, like if you're talking, you're going to be somehow lying or it just feels like that. So that was my little uh, way out was to make a joke out of it. But yes, I've absolutely dealt with that. And especially doing mentalism, um, people really will think it's real and come up to you afterward. And you're caught in this weird place because you want to let them have the mystery. You don't want to you know, say, <laughs> take the fun out of Disneyland, but also you don't want to lie. So it's very, it can be very strange. And I, I actually think there are theories out there that I've read that that's <laughs> one of the reasons that women actually have a harder time with some aspects of performing it. Not, no offense to men saying you're all liars or anything, but but when they broke down the social dynamics of how women bond with each other and the idea of like keeping secrets from each other or the idea of lying or all of these things that are sort of built into the female psyche in a different way, it's just sort of one aspect that I thought was interesting because I definitely feel that full force when I'm going in front of a room full of people, even if I know it's just for fun, if I'm saying I'm doing something that I'm not saying, I, I don't enjoy that feeling. But I think there are a lot of creative ways to work around that. Obviously, silent stuff, but there are a lot of other ways to not have to just feel that awful feeling. <laughs> can, we, can we talk about your experience on the show itself, on Fool Us? What was, what was that like, being on Fool Us? Uh, oh, man. Well, I had had so little uh, camera experience. I I had done like, I had on only live shows. So being in front of a camera was scary for me. Being on TV was not something I'd done except once as an assistant for Jonathan Pendragon, which was totally different. This is like on your face. So I was terrified. <laughs> I was terrified, but I was also really excited because I knew that Penn and Teller don't know who's going to be on before. And I had known them since I was a little kid. So I knew that they were going to be surprised to see me and they were, and that was a fun part, but no, I was shaking in my boots. <laughs> like it was, couldn't tell. You couldn't um, looking at it. You, I'm really grateful for terrific. that. You look just, it was great. Plus ice magic is very uh, scary to do too, because it's so temperamental. Like there was the whole transporting of, you know, this block of ice and making sure it doesn't melt. And so there are all these, hilarious things but yeah it ended up being such a such a great experience jim has had the experience of being at the magic castle oddly enough even though i've written seven books about a magician who talks about the magic castle all the time i've just never had the uh, occasion to be out in los angeles uh, i hope to go at some point but when i look at photos of things that are happening i'm more excited to go to brookledge and see brookledge follies than i am the magic castle it looks Ooh. like so much fun. So tell me, what is that and how often does it happen? And is it invite only or how does a person get, get in there? The Brookledge Follies is my mom, Erica Larson's love child and all of our love child. Um, it is invitation only. It is not a ticketed event. Nobody pays for tickets. It's all just been like a labor of love. But my mom is really kind of a, a perfect social genius to be architect. <laughs> architecting <laughs> to be to be designing all of this because she she just weaves in different audiences and keeps track of she she's always like getting new people in and making sure people are coming who haven't seen it but also you know just curating the whole thing so that's sort of how it works she's the uh, top banana is it is it a magic show it's a variety show that often includes magic, but all kinds of variety arts. And so we just get performers from all over, depending on who's in town or who's local talent around LA. And some of the shows are really crazy. She just has a total love for extremely eccentric 
performers. And then we get a lot of classic stuff too. And you get big names with people who are just starting and it's just a, yeah, it's wonderful. We'd love to have you sometime. Well, we'd love to do that. Where, where, where's the venue or does it change? The venue is here at Brooklyn, where I am right now uh, in Los Angeles in Hancock Park. So the Brooklyn was sort of the original magic castle. It was built by a guy, Floyd Thayer. This was his magic sure. studio. And oh, really? so a, yeah, so there's a theater that he built in the 1930s as his showroom for all of his props. And that was the store where all the magicians came to hang out every weekend. Yeah. Uh, so my great grandfather and Floyd traded houses. Wow. I know it's kind of a crazy thing to do. And then my family took over the family business for a while. And then the Larsons were based here ever since. So my grandparents, my grandfather and his brother grew up here. My grandmother moved in. My mom and her siblings were born here. And I've lived here on and off throughout my life too. And yeah, now my mom and I are just in the process of just figuring out what, how to, how to keep it going and how to, um, like the house is very happy when people are in it. When I was a kid, there was not much going on in the theater. It was sort of a little dormant volcano situation. And then my mom resurrected it about 11 or 12 years ago and started getting people back in here for shows. And, and the theater is extremely happy. <laughs> well, I bet it is. Boy, I, I, that is so cool. I had, I had no idea that it was Thayer's old uh, theater. That is so cool. Well, you're following the wrong people on Facebook. Because if, you, I am. I if you're following a Jay Johnson or, or a Rob Zabrecki, these pictures pop up. And you go, oh, that looked like that was fun. <laughs> yeah. Shout out to Jay and Rob. <laughs> I love both of them so much. So speaking of Rob, you mentioned him as, as a kind of a mentor hero. Totally. And he was actually our very first guest on the podcast. It was so sweet to come on and, and talk about the Houdini seance and about skeptics and debunking and all that, because that's a big part of this first book. I, I got to see him for the first time at the Genie Convention. I think it was the 75th one, where he made sort of his East Coast debut, and yeah. no one on the East Coast had heard of him, and everyone, you guys all knew him already. And um, he was introduced, and you know, he in this instance, Hotel Ballroom, he comes in from a side door, <laughs> and he takes his time. Yes. And that's the beauty of uh, someone like him. Uh, there's performers like that who are not afraid to be quiet. Yeah. Even though he does a speaking performer, he's not afraid to take those silences. And uh, Are there any other heroes in, the, uh, in that realm who you look forward to seeing perform? I, who do, Michael Carbonaro is one of my absolute favorite people to see perform live. His live show is just, I mean, his TV show is genius and incredible. His live show is so much fun. I miss seeing him live. I miss seeing Max Maven live. <laughs> mm -hmm. I love seeing him. I miss seeing I miss seeing Derek Delgadio when I saw when I saw his most beautiful, most recent show at the Geffen. Not that I could see him now, but oh, so many people. Can I say one of my favorite Max Maven memories? Not that I have a lot of them, but he did come to Minneapolis. For, uh, it was sitting in a hotel lobby with Max waiting for people to show up uh -huh. and, and getting probably the best lesson on how and where to eat sushi mm -hmm. anywhere in the world, how to find the best, you know, what are you looking for? This is what you need. Uh, Not exactly what I expected to hear from, but it was a little tiny masterclass in sushi. Max is the best that way with the encyclopedic knowledge he and my mom dated when I was little and so there were a few years there where Max was like a real father figure in my life and he still is and he was just the best to be around as a little kid because he would he was the only person who would answer all of my questions and I always asked tons of questions and he was just right there like let's talk about it and he just he, he just oh his brain is a gold mine. It's yeah. just like unbelievable how much he he knows and how just how he can remember. It's like it's and his ability to express it. Yes. Um, with clarity. Yes. Um, and eloquently. Yes. Yeah. Such a good, graceful communicator, and yeah, oh, he's such a hero. When he was here, one of the when we all finally got to dinner, the most touching thing was Suzanne said, so um, when Eugene died, you were out of the country. 
what was that like? And he walked us through his final phone call with Eugene. And it was so, you could just hear in his voice this intense friendship these two guys had. God, I miss watching Eugene perform and hearing that voice. Yeah. Uh, I I, I, uh, reached out to Eugene in 1986, just out of the blue. Didn't know him, didn't live in Chicago, but had read Spirit Theater and reached out to him on the phone and said, I'd really like to oh. do that show. Uh, and he said, ah, uh, who are you? And I told him and he said, uh, uh, well, listen, I'm just uh, leaving. Can you call me in a week? And I said, sure. So I called him in a week and he said, uh, oh yeah, right. You were going to call me. I'm just going to the dentist. Can you call me in a week? Yeah, I'm, I'm happy to call you in a week. So I called him in a week and uh, he said, okay, I've thought about it. Um, you can do it. If you want to do it, you can do it. I'll help you. Here's what we'll do. And, uh, and so I had the, the, the uh, luxury of uh, going to stay with Eugene and having Eugene mm. teach me what I needed to know to do the front part of the show. And then he flew to Minneapolis and taught us how to do the back part of the show. Yeah. What a gift it's, that you got to do that with him. Uh, yeah. It was, it That's was, uh, it was a delight. We worked, he, yeah, he was so generous and kind and, so generous. Yeah. And, and what you said just reminds me so much of the magic community in general so often and what my, you know, my grandparents always talked about this, like among all the different uh, niches of, you know, artists or, you know, you could take writers or directors or photographers or anyone, it, magicians are stand apart in the sense of, you know, my grandparents always said they're the only ones that you could go to another city where you've never been and look up someone in the phone book when people use phone books and be like oh there's a magician we'll have, and just call them up and be like hey like just sort of connect right away yeah. and have yeah. that camaraderie and that like sense of community almost instantly with people based on this shared passion like that speaks to eugene and it also speaks to how magicians get so excited about just connecting <laughs> it's, it's awesome You know, I think if uh, if you did a search when we're all done with this whole series of podcasts, look for one name that keeps popping up. It's going to be Eugene Berger. Yeah, I think you might be right. It's amazing uh, how many lives he touched. Uh, he was an incredible, absolute genius in my life, certainly, and uh, got me going in a direction that uh, I am still on today, thanks to his tutelage. Yeah, he was quite, quite the guy. Yeah. I was surprised uh, during the interview that you'd never heard of Brooklyn Follies. And it's rare that I've heard of something in magic that you haven't. Yeah, I guess I just, I don't know where, because I must not be, as you mentioned, following the right people on Facebook, because I had never heard of it. And now I, I got to get invited to that. I, I have to see one of those shows. Yeah. And we, we, we should combine, I don't know. We have to figure that out, John, because that would be just so cool. And to be in uh, Floyd Thayer's home and theater would be, I don't care. They wouldn't even have to do anything. Just let me sit in the room for a little while. It would be just so cool. I see. This is something where I knew about Brooklyn Follies and you didn't. And you know about Thayer and I'm not familiar with Thayer. So what there can you tell me a, about? Uh, Thayer was a creator of magic equipment and uh, he had... Sort of, um, in fact, in my second year doing hauntings, I used a Thayer wrapping hand. So it was a very, you know, uh, a board with a, a hand on it and it would wrap. And Thayer created that probably in the, I'm going to guess now, somebody listening can correct me. I, I have no problem with being corrected. I think I've demonstrated that. In the 30s is my guess. And this thing still worked. I borrowed it from Fred Bache. Uh, who is a local magician here in the Twin Cities. And he had a, a collection of things, including one of Houdini's wands. But he loaned me this Thayer wrapping hand and Eugene helped me create. Uh, I, I, in the second year I did hauntings, I wanted a piece about Houdini. And even though Eugene was like, ah, God, come on, who wants to talk about him? I said, no, I think, I think people are still interested in him. Nobody cares about that guy. Plus, what are you going to, I mean, he, so, 
eventually I wore him down. He said, okay, what are you going to do? And I said, well, I thought I'd use this wrapping hand. He said, stop. You can use the wrapping hand, but listen to me. The wrapping hand wraps once the crowd goes wild. It wraps twice. The crowd goes mild. It wraps more than three times and the crowd hates it. They check out. So we got to conceive a routine where the wrapping hand doesn't wrap more than twice. And with his help, we did. And it was a highlight of the show. People loved it. It was all about Houdini. And, uh, but Thayer created that wrapping hand. And 50 years after it came off the factory line, it still worked perfectly. And it was so ingenious in terms of its method and how it all. And 50 years after it was used and created, I was using it and it was still working perfectly. So he's a genius. And uh, I think if you if you Google Floyd Thayer, John, you're going to just be shocked by the amount of things Thayer created. He was a, an icon from that generation. Well, we'll have to get him on the podcast, Jim. Oh, I don't know. I, you'd have to get Rob Zabrecki to get him on the podcast for us, I think. Ah, yes. Oh, boy. And and I was really uh, interested in that the one magician, if she could go back in time and see, she would have been Dante, because in a few episodes, we're going to talk to Mike Caveney about Dante and the song A Woman in Half Routine. The minute I think of Dante, I always, of course, default to Laurel and Hardy, Haunting We Will Go. Did Is he in that? that? Yeah. Yeah. He's the magician in that. I so had no idea. Yeah. So if you haven't seen A Haunting We Will Go, I'm a big Laurel and Hardy guy. Not their best work, but it's fun to see Dante. If there's a link available, I'll put it in the show notes. Very good. So anyway, that was Liberty Larson. She was so much fun to talk to. Like I said, that's the last of three interviews on Growing Up in Magic. Uh, it's a theme that I think we're going to keep coming back to. Yeah, so have. if there are any magicians out there that you, the audience, would like to hear from, let us know or just let us know. Anything you think about the podcast, just go to elimarksmysteries.com. That's E-L-I-M-A-R-K-S, mysteries.com. Hit the contact button. Let us know who you'd like to hear or any thoughts you have on this podcast. Yeah, we're, we're very flexible. We, uh, I can touch my toes if I'm sitting down. But you, seriously, send us uh, anything you'd like us to cover or talk about or inter somebody you'd like us to interview. We would love your input and to tailor this podcast a little bit to uh, your interests as well as our own. And I think that makes, uh, we are now up to chapter 12. So you better tell us what happened in chapter 11, John, because I certainly don't remember. I know it's been a long time for you. In that chapter, we learned that hypnotherapist Bitterman had been found murdered oh. and that a king of diamonds card was found on the bottom of his CPAP machine. Eli then almost had a almost had a romantic lunch with Megan. And with that in mind, we uh, now jump into the ambitious card, chapter 12. <laughs> The Ambitious Card, and Eli Marks Mystery. Chapter 12. They still think you're a murderer? Well, that's a load of malarkey. Actually, now they think I'm a double murderer. Double malarkey, then. Harry and I were having breakfast in his kitchen, and I was bringing him up to speed on the death of Dr. Bitterman and my current standing with the Minneapolis Police Department which could best be defined as just to the right of iffy. I cleared the plates and came back with the coffee pot for refills all around. So what's your next move, he asked, adding fake sugar, which he's allowed to have, and real cream, which is forbidden. The action instantly turned the coffee from rich dark brown to ashen white. I don't have a next move, I said, replacing the coffee urn and returning to my chair unless you count doing my darndest to stay out of jail for a crime, two crimes now, that I didn't commit. Harry shook his head. You need a next move. Times like this call for action, not complacency. You've got to be, what's the term they use nowadays, he said, searching for the word and finally finding it. Proactive. Grab the bull by the whatever. I considered this. So what steps are you recommending that I take proactively, I asked pouring the rest of the cream into my cup to help deaden the coffee's acidic taste. Ah, oh, the usual, he said brightly. Revisit the crime scenes, interview the witnesses, evaluate the evidence, create a hypothesis, and then take steps to prove or disprove it. 
Basic scientific method. But that could take all morning, I whined. Don't be a smartass, he said in a grave tone. That ex-wife of yours can only keep the wolf from the door for so long, and then you're going to have to pay the piper. Metaphor police, I called out. Metaphor police. Ah, joke all you want, he grumbled as he sat back and took a long sip of the beige coffee. I'm just saying no one on the police force is looking out for your best interests, and if your name is going to be cleared, odds are you're the one who's going to have to do it. We sat in silence for a few moments. Actually, I said, finally acquiescing, there are a couple of people I'd like to talk to just to clear up some of the questions in my own mind. Excellent. That's the spirit, Harry said as he got up to take his cup to the counter. This new sense of purpose seemed to take ten years off his normally measured movements. I'll go with you. Help you make sure that no stones are left unturned. He set his cup in the sink and began to rummage around in his pockets. Now, where are my keys? Oh, my, I forgot about these. He pulled two coins out of his pocket and held them up for me. These are just since yesterday morning, he said. What do you mean? I mean, I found two more dimes since yesterday morning, just walking down to the mailbox on the corner. Can you believe that? Well, that is interesting. You should hang on to all the ones you find. Oh, I'm already doing that. He moved past me toward the stairs, and as he did, he deposited the coins in a small mason jar that sat on a small knick-knack shelf near the doorway. He bent down and straightened the worn, braided throw rug that sat at the top of the staircase, then headed down the stairs. Let's get a move on, he said as his voice disappeared down the narrow, steep stairway into the shop below. I'll be right there, I called after him, taking my own coffee cup to the sink but never really taking my eyes off the mason jar. The cup deposited, I made a beeline to the jar and studied it for a long moment. I'm terrible at those guess-how-many-jelly-beans-are-in-the-jar contests, and so I had no real idea how many dimes were in the mason jar. But there were a lot of them. They covered the entire bottom of the jar. How many was that? More than ten, for sure. But thirty? Possibly. More than thirty? also possible. I picked up the glass jar and gave it a gentle shake, listening to the coins as they danced around inside, then set it down and headed to the shop. The official opening time for Chicago Magic is, at best, a moving target. I can safely say that it occurs at some point in the morning, Monday through Saturday, but you'd be foolish to set your watch to it. In fact, there was one quiet day without a single customer when, at closing time, we went to close up shop and discovered that we'd never actually unlocked the front door. When I pointed out this oversight to Harry, he was sanguine on the topic, reasoning that anyone who really, really wanted to come in only had to knock. I was reminded of this as I descended the steps from Harry's apartment into the store because I was greeted by the sound of someone knocking on the front door in a manner that could only be described as lackluster. At first, I wasn't even sure that it was an actual knock. It was as if the very act of raising one's arm and striking one's hand against the door was simply too exhausting, and that attitude was reflected in the knock itself. Nathan's here, Harry said as he took down his coat from the hook by the back door. Sounds like he's in a good mood, too, he added. Harry was correct on at least one point. It was Nathan who stood morosely outside the front door with two large shopping bags, one in each hand. He was not dressed as a pirate today, but instead in torn jeans and a T-shirt that I believe was the same one he was wearing when I first met him 15 years earlier. Over this ensemble, he wore a leather bomber jacket, another piece of his clothing that never looked new, yet never seemed to age. "'Morning, Nathan,' I said cheerfully as I swung the door open. Yes, it is that, he agreed flatly as he passed me in the doorway. No getting around it. He hefted one of the bags up and set it atop the first display case. The other one he set on the floor. It made a distinctive clank when it connected with the tile floor. I brought back the balloon gag, he said, and he bent down and opened the top of the bag, pointing out the items within. The tank, the belt, the hose and nozzle, and all the leftover balloons. Great. How'd it work with the kids? I was anxious to hear if it had produced the desired effect. Oh, it went okay. I think it went okay. 
He droned in his emotionless intonation, his head bobbing rhythmically as he spoke. His manner made it sound like it had been a massive bomb, but then everything he described sounded that way, so in my mind, the jury was still out. And, I said, prodding him for more information. Well, he said, considering his words, when I finished the first balloon, I let go of it, and the air circulation in the room picked it up, and it just gently floated over to the birthday kid, right to him. It looked like it was planned, you know? It was like out of a movie. It just drifted over to him, just above his head, and sat there. Kids started cheering. Moms were crying. Dads were asking for my business card. So, yeah, it worked pretty good. That's great, I said, picking up the paper bag and carrying it toward the back of the store. Let me know when you need it again, and I'll make sure that the tank is refilled. I sat the bag down in my to-do area, which still included restocking the gag gifts. The carton of fart spray sat opened and untouched from several days earlier when I had begun that task. I picked up the carton and set it atop one of the display cases, taking out a couple of the cans to act as a visual reminder of what still needed to get done. Yeah, that's what I wanted to talk to you about, Nathan said, leaning one elbow lazily on the counter next to his other shopping bag. Seeing that our departure was, for the moment, delayed, Harry sat on a stool by the back counter. I've got a gig next week, Nathan continued. A birthday party, about 20 kids out in North Oaks. Turns out it's the same date as my cousin's wedding in Park City out in Utah. I was wondering if you'd like to cover for me? I brought all the stuff, he said, gesturing to the bag he'd placed on the counter. Nothing too difficult, nothing out of your league. Me? Be a kid's magician? I asked in mock amazement. Hey, trust me, it's a lot harder than it looks, Nathan replied. Of course it is, Harry echoed from the back of the shop. He got off his stool and headed toward us. It's a fine and noble tradition, that of the children's magician. You see, he said, moving into lecture mode, the primary difficulty with children's magic is that, to a child, everything is magic. You put bread in a toaster, and out pops toast. That's magic. You put a plastic card in a machine at the mall, and out pops money. That's magic. Harry's right, Nathan said. Kids aren't impressed with magic. What impresses kids is when you screw up, and then screw up again, and then you get it right. They eat that up. I considered what he had said. Screw up, screw up again, and then get it right, I repeated. Nathan nodded. I can do that, I said confidently. Hell, that's basically a description of my act. I got the details of the upcoming kids show from Nathan, and he showed me the pirate costume and the other props that he'd packed into the shopping bag, having anticipated that I would agree to cover the gig for him. Then Harry and I locked up the store, which, to that point, had only essentially been open for about five minutes. After an amiable drive during which Harry continued his lecture on the purity of children's magic, we found ourselves in front of Akashic Records, a funky store on the south edge of downtown Minneapolis. The store was visible from the freeway, and although I had driven by it on that same freeway for years, this was my first attempt at finding it via side streets. This involved a couple of wrong turns and the sudden and surprising appearance of a one-way street, but eventually we found the store, parked the car in the adjacent lot, and headed toward the entrance. A sign on the store's front door declared, This establishment bans dangerous weapons, which immediately produced a hearty chuckle from Harry. But I'm guessing that non-dangerous weapons are welcome with open arms, he said wryly, as he pushed open the door and stepped into the shop. The first thing that hit us was the smell followed immediately by the smell. Of course there was patchouli, but that was the least of it. In fact, for once, the patchouli was almost refreshing. Imagine that your grandmother had spent the last 40 years assembling every smelly, putrid, flowery candle on the face of the earth. And we're not talking candles with complimentary odors. These are candles that were in a fighting mood, all elbows and attitude. And then imagine that your grandmother had stored all those candles in one cramped closet. And one day, your overweight, mean-spirited, pimply cousin locked you in that closet for an hour. That comes close to describing the intensity of the olfactory assault, but not entirely. It was clear that the store sold candles. 
We had determined that by the wall of stench that had bombarded us at the door, but the rest of the inventory was a bit mind-boggling and perhaps even schizophrenic. Incense, rock posters, jewelry, political posters, meditation tapes, wheat-free muffins and cookies, fresh ground coffee and shade-grown beans, children's toys and games, books on spirituality, funky clothing, more jewelry, hand-woven bags and shawls, and finally, CDs and DVDs. And oddly enough, bins full of something I had not seen in quite a long time. Vinyl records, Harry said in a hushed, almost religious tone. Oh, my Lord, look at them. And with that, he was gone. Headed over to the rows and rows of bins, stuffed with new and used vinyl records. Several customers roamed through the sprawling store, but I didn't see anyone who looked like they worked there. Not that I was clear on what a clerk at Akashic Records would actually look like. After several moments of searching, I found the lone cash register and positioned myself near it, figuring that action would tag me as someone interested in a transaction of some kind. Moments later, that gambit paid off. Have you been helped? A voice asked. I turned and found myself face to face with perhaps the most beautiful man I had ever seen. He was in his late twenties, and he was wearing a crisp white shirt. He had thick black hair and a dark complexion, making me think he could be Greek or Italian or just really, really tan. With his perfect teeth, classic day-old beard stubble and high cheekbones, he looked like he had just stepped off the pages of GQ. He was so good-looking, it was all I could do not to squint when I looked at him. Yes, I said. I'm here to see Ariana Dupree. He gave me a long look and then tapped a few keystrokes into the laptop next to the cash register. Ariana's in session right now, he said as he studied the screen. Do you have an appointment? No. Do I need one? I just have a few questions for her. It won't take long. I, I was just in the neighborhood. I was making this up as I went along, and it sounded like it. Can I tell Ariana what this concerns? His tone made him sound like the maitre d' at a five-star restaurant instead of a retail clerk at the local head shop. I decided to fight fire with fire. Yes, I said with gravity. I'm here to discuss the murder of Walter Grabowski, also known as Gray, and the murder of Dr. Morris Bitterman. That got his attention. Who should I tell her? He let his words hang in the air like the balloon effect I had created for Nathan. Eli Marks, I said. One moment, please. He discreetly closed the laptop and disappeared through a beaded curtain into the back of the shop. I glanced around the store and finally spotted Harry, who was happily sorting through old albums, occasionally pulling one out and examining it more closely. I heard the jangle of beads and turned to see the handsome male clerk returning. Ariana will be with you in a minute, he said, all the frost now melted from his voice. Can I get you a cup of green tea and some mango slices? I shook my head. No, thanks. Would you care for a quick hit off the oxygen bar, he suggested, gesturing toward one counter that was set up with small oxygen masks, tubes, and tanks. It's great for clearing out the negative ions. No, thanks, man, I said. I'm cool. Well, don't hesitate to ask if you need anything. Actually, I said as he began to walk away, I did have a question for you. Yes, he turned back, clearly trying to put an expression of interest and concern on his face. It wasn't really working. Did you know Gray and Dr. Bitterman? I've met them both, yes. When I decided to get into the intuitive healing arts, I made a point of meeting all the top people in the Twin Cities. The best, of course, being Ariana. So you didn't know them personally? I've interacted with both of them at social gatherings, and I did one past-life reading with Dr. Bitterman, which was, at best, disappointing and, at worst, unprofessional. Really? I'd prefer not to get into it. Were you at the memorial service for Gray and the reception that followed? His eyes narrowed at me. Yes. I helped Ariana set up her harp before the service. I also went to the reception, but I arrived later than most of the others. Why was that? Not that it's any of your business, but Ariana didn't want her harp to sit in the car during the reception. Cold weather can warp it, or so she says, so I took it back to her apartment for her and then came later to the reception. 
His stare had turned to ice. Is there anything else? I shook my head. That's it. Thanks. Fine. Ariana will be out in a moment. He walked away again, stopping at a nearby counter to straighten a small display that didn't need straightening. I could tell that he was keeping an eye on me. Eli, how nice to see you again. Ariana parted the beaded curtain and skillfully maneuvered her large frame through the narrow doorway. I had a feeling that our paths would cross again, and I was right. Score one more for the psychics. She moved with remarkable speed and grace for a person her size, and before I realized what was happening, she was nearly on top of me. She was wearing several flowing layers of billowing pastel silks and scarves, looking like Mama Cass, as dressed by Stevie Nicks. She deftly planted an air kiss on each cheek and then turned around and headed back toward the doorway, just in time to greet a thin, sad-looking woman in her 20s who was making her way through the beads. Now, Virginia, remember what I told you, Ariana said to the woman in a cooing, soothing voice. The mind, the body, the spirit are all one. If one is damaged, they're all damaged. If one is cured, they're all cured. We made a lot of progress today, but this was just another small step on what may prove to be a long and strenuous journey. However, she continued, placing a hand gently on the woman's back, it's a journey that we'll be taking together. You'll never be alone. Do you understand that? I do, she said softly. I'm just so worried about everything, and I think that's what's making me sick. My job, my finances, my cat. It's kind of overwhelming. Ariana smiled sympathetically. Yes, of course it is. But the key thing to remember is that you're not alone. The universe is there to support you. And don't forget, I'm here as well, okay? The woman smiled just a bit. Ariana moved in closer and took her hand. I'll see you at the same time the day after tomorrow, but you call if you need to talk before then. Promise me you'll call? The woman nodded. Good girl, Ariana said. Now go talk to Michael, and he'll settle up today's charges. She gently pushed the woman toward the handsome clerk, who had noiselessly returned to his position at the cash register. He looked to Ariana, who gave him a subtle shake of her head. He began to flip through some screens on the laptop. The woman was opening her purse as she approached him. You know, Virginia, it looks like you overpaid last time, so there's no charge for today. She looked up, surprised. Really? He consulted the computer again. That's what it says here. You're all set. Oh, okay. Great. I, I can use the money. She closed her purse and smiled at him, clearly pleased at this turn of events. I'll see you next time. She headed toward the door, and Ariana watched her go. When she had left the store, Ariana turned and gestured toward me to follow as she moved back toward the beaded curtain. Michael called after her. Dewey, don't forget that your 11 o'clock wanted both the full body work and the aura photos. Ariana nodded at him as she sailed through the store. I'm between sessions, she said, glancing back at me. So if you want to talk, you'll have to walk, she laughed as she disappeared into the back room and I followed. And then I stopped. He'd called her Dewey. It was pretty clearly a nickname based on her last name, Dupree, but something else about it sounded familiar. I turned to check on Harry one last time. He was still standing by the used bins in vinyl bliss, so I pushed the beads aside and stepped through the doorway. I wasn't sure what I would see when I walked through the curtain. Straight ahead was a small photo studio, set up with a digital camera, lights, a laptop, and printer. The backdrop for the studio was a bit puzzling. The left half of the wall was painted bright white, while the right half was painted black. Ariana saw my reaction and smiled. That's where I do my aura photos. Some people's auras photograph best against a white background, some against black. Even after doing it for years, I can't tell which will work better until I get them in front of the camera. She turned left into a small room while I stopped to look at the framed photos on the wall. They were all portrait shots, like you'd get from a professional photographer. The difference was that each person had a colorful glow surrounding them, 
the colors varied. Some were surrounded by blue light, others by yellow, while a small number were bathed in red. They reminded me of the old days, when we shot photos with film and the last couple of photos on a roll would often have an odd glow to them because the film had been exposed to extra light before developing. So what can I do for you, Eli? Ariana called from the room she had disappeared into. One photo caught my eye. It was of a young woman with long, dark hair. And although I didn't recognize her, she did remind me of someone. And then it hit me. Nova, I said out loud. What's that? Ariana called from the other room. Nova had told me that one of her past bows had been named Dewey. I had assumed that Dewey had been a male, but most of my other assumptions about Nova had been wrong, so there was no reason why this one couldn't get in line to join them. Nova, I repeated as I rounded the corner and stepped into the small room. It was a therapy room of some kind with a couch and chair. It was lit entirely with candles, some of which Ariana was in the midst of switching out for her next client. Do you know a girl named Nova? She worked for Gray. And before that, she worked for me, Ariana said with just a touch of bitterness in her voice. She lit the final two candles and stood back to assess her work, then turned to me. A sweet girl and a lovely spirit. We did not part well. I blame Gray for that. He took a perverse pleasure in destroying things, like relationships. She turned and looked at one of the candles for a long moment. It may have been a trick of the light, but I think I saw a tear in her eye. She was a very special girl, and he took her from me in every way. I'm sorry to hear that, I said. She shook her head, breaking her reverie. Yes, well... Now I have Michael, and all is as it should be. I must say you have a rare gift for hiring stunning clerks. What can I say? I have a thing for beauty, she said, giving me a playful tap on the arm. Can't get enough of it. Some people are addicted to drugs, some to cigarettes, some to sex. Me? I'm addicted to beauty. She stepped out of the therapy room and moved toward the photo studio, flipping on the lights to fully illuminate the backdrop. So that was the therapy room where I do readings and full-body healings, she said, gesturing expansively around the space. This is the studio for aura photography, and over there, she said, pointing around a corner to a long, tall bench with bright lights positioned above it, is where I do jewelry repair. If I've learned anything in this life, it's that success is all about diversification. Did you ever confront Gray about what he did to your relationship with Nova? I asked as I followed her. She turned out the final light and looked at me. You mean, did I kill him? Well, yes, if you want to cut to the chase. She smiled wickedly and shook her head. No, I didn't. But I certainly thought about it. A lot. Fortunately, someone beat me to it. She gave me another wicked smile and began fiddling with the camera on the tripod, adjusting the controls while she looked at the image on the small screen on the back of the camera. Do you have any idea who beat you to it? Hun, do me a favor and stand in front of the camera on the X on the floor. I obliged and moved in front of the camera. There were two marks on the floor, one on the white side and one on the black side. White or black? Let's start with white. I stood in front of the white portion on the backdrop, but the moment I got settled, she called from behind the camera. Oops, wrong, dead wrong. You need the black background. I moved over to the black side and waited patiently. You have a very inquisitive aura, she said, her face still hidden behind the lens. You can see that through the camera? Honey, I saw that the moment you walked in. So, you're playing detective now in an attempt to clear your name? Something like that. Well, I love that. And I love your aura. I heard the click of the shutter, followed immediately by a second identical click. Ariana's head popped up from behind the camera, and she turned toward the laptop on the stand next to the camera. She began tapping away on the keys. Unfortunately, I'm afraid I won't be of much help to you. 
Not only is the list of people who hated Gray as long as my arm, she looked around dramatically, pretending that she was making sure that we were alone. But to be honest, I don't want whoever did it to get caught, unless they're planning on giving that person a medal. You said as much at the reception, and I meant it. The world is a hard enough place as it is without bastards like Gray making it worse. She hit another key on the keyboard, and a moment later, a piece of paper began to come into view from the printer. She smiled knowingly as it emerged. Very interesting, she said slowly. Very interesting indeed. She picked up the completed print and brought it over to me. It was the photo she had just taken of me, but my body was surrounded by a rainbow of colors. Blues, reds, yellows, and a thin layer of sickly green that hung close to my body. Wow, was all I could say after looking at the photo. Obviously, there's a lot going on here. If you have a minute, she said, there are a few things I can tell you about your search based on your aura. I'll spare you the details of Ariana's exhaustive reading of my aura. Suffice it to say that my aura was in conflict. My chi was completely out of whack. My chakras were jumbled up like a crash test dummy after a serious wreck. Consequently, she explained, this was not a good time for new relationships or existing relationships. And if one could believe my aura, whatever trouble I was in was likely to get worse. Basically, my aura, my chi, and my chakras were suggesting that my wisest course of action would be to take to my bed and stay there. By the time we emerged from the back room, Uncle Harry was completing the purchase of a small stack of records. Michael had rung up the total and was just processing Harry's credit card. Oh, Buster, you have to see these. I got some choice records to add to my collection, Harry said to me as I made my way through the beaded curtain. Stanley Myron Handelman, Corbett Monica, Woody Woodbury, even a rusty Warren that I was missing. Good, good stuff. My uncle collects comedy albums of performers that he worked with at one time or another, I said by way of explanation to Ariana. He's a magician. So it runs in the family, Ariana said, smiling broadly. Ariana, this is Harry Marks, my uncle, I said. Harry, this is Ariana Dupree. She's the proprietor of Akashic Records, among other skills. A fine establishment, Harry said as she took his hand in greeting. And what are your other skills? I travel along a wide spectrum on the astral plane, she said, still holding on to his hand. But my primary gift is that of a full-body healer using the art of Jory. Which means what? he asked as he seamlessly switched into his avuncular inquisitive mode. It means, she said, caressing his hand slightly as she studied it closely, that my gifts allow me to diagnose and treat illness of the mind, body, and spirit. For example, I'm intuiting that you're currently suffering from a bit of arthritis. She looked him right in the eye. Harry shook his head but continued to smile benignly. Ariana quickly moved ahead without skipping a beat. Or actually, it feels more like a rheumatoid condition. Another gentle shake of the head from Harry. Ariana set down his right hand and took up the left. A respiratory ailment, something in the chest on the left side. She looked at Harry questioningly. He smiled and shook his head. She released his hand. Harry, you seem to be in fine shape. Knock on wood, he said, giving the wooden portion of the counter a solid rap. Harry's not a big believer in the intuitive arts, I said, feeling that someone had to state the obvious. I was surprised that the only person to raise an objection to this was Harry. On the contrary... I often look to the intuitive arts to help me plan for the future, Harry said, turning back to Ariana. In fact, I'm a big believer in cladomancy, gyromancy, and tyromancy, to name only three. I don't think I'm familiar with those, Ariana said, a puzzled expression on her face. Oh, well, they're the art of divining the future by respectively dangling keys, walking in a circle until you become dizzy and fall down, and my favorite, tyromancy, whereby you tell the future by means of a piece of cheese. Ariana looked at him for what seemed like a long time, and then her lips began to form a wry smile. Harry, 
You're having fun with me, aren't you? He returned the smile. Yes, I am. Just a bit. She put an arm around him and pulled him close, enveloping him within her massive bosom. Eli, I like this man. I like him a lot. I could barely see Harry's face, but what little I saw told me that he liked her right back. When we got out to the parking lot, I discovered that I'd forgotten my iPhone in the car and that someone had left me a message. I turned on the engine to get the heater going, and while Harry cooed over his cache of albums again, I checked my voicemail. It was an unfamiliar number and a slightly familiar voice, but she got my attention right away. Hello, Eli, the voice on the recording said. This is Franny Higgins. We met at the memorial service. Sorry to bother you, but I thought we should talk. I just got a phone call from someone. He wanted a psychic reading, and the thing is, he said he thinks that he is the one who killed Gray. And that wraps up Chapter 12 of The Ambitious Card. A good one. It, this chapter has the very first reference to Harry's hobby of collecting comedy albums of people he's worked with. That's kind of a nice, fun little deal. Yeah, that's just me wanting to name check either favorite comedy albums or in the case of uh, I, the ones that are mentioned in this chapter, I think, are Stanley Meyer and Handelman, Corbett Monica, Woody Woodbury, and Rusty Warren, I think, are the four. All uh, household names. Well, no. Well, in my household, yes. Because I used to collect uh, comedy albums when I was a kid and would go through the uh, the comedy bins back when there were record stores where you could actually buy used records. And I did see the Stanley Myron Handelman one quite a bit. I saw Rusty Warren a lot. I uh, never bought either one of them because I didn't really care for Stanley and Rusty seemed a little too blue for me. However, uh, Corbett Monica, I could only find one Corbett Monica album and I still have it to this day. It's still one of my f- favorite albums. And then Woody Woodbury, who I believe is a St. Paul native. What? I believe Woody Woodbury, well, he certainly went to some school here because he came back for some sort of reunion, a reunion kind of dinner performance at, I think, Mancini's. No way. Way. And I went there and I was the youngest one there because it was all people who had gone to school with Woody Woodbury. And I had a couple of my albums, of his albums, and he signed them for me. And uh, he was a bigger, people don't remember him now, but he was kind of a big deal at the time. He was very popular uh, and his albums were just a little bit risque as as we will find out next week uh when we're going to dig a lot deeper into comedy albums we're going to veer away from magic for one week and talk to wayne fetterman uh wayne is a stand-up comedian he's an actor and he's also a professor and comedy historian about the history of stand-up in general he's going to talk to us about the first comedy albums that came out in the the pioneers uh, in that field and why it sort of changed the face of comedy. Cause there were some comedians who said, there's no way I'm taking my act and putting it on an album and selling it for buck 99 when I'm making 15,000 a week in Vegas, why would I do that? But it was a way uh, I think we compare it uh, when we chatted about the way podcasts have been a way for new comedians to reach their fans directly. And comedy albums were the same thing. Anyway, Wayne has a great podcast called The History of Stand-Up. He has a companion book that goes with it. That'll be next episode. We'll chat with him. He's uh, he's he's a lot of fun. I uh, I could tell you a story uh, next, week, next episode about uh, my love and fascination of Steve Martin's album, Let's Get Small, and the playing of that at a Catholic boys' school assembly while people were filing in for the midwinter princess coronation it doesn't end well it doesn't we're gonna leave that as a cliffhanger till next time normally we'd say uh please review and rate us what we said that last time so we'll just say thanks so much for tuning in and we'll see you next episode thanks jim thanks john thanks everybody This has been Behind the Page, the Eli Marks podcast with your hosts, John Gaspard and Jim Cunningham, produced by Albert's Bridge Books at Grass Lake Studios. Find this podcast and all the books in the Eli Marks series at elimarksmysteries.com. That's E-L-I-M-A-R-K-S, mysteries.com. And thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.